Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, The phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Introducing Miguel Tully. He's into enlightening others in an everlasting way. He's an artivist, a disgruntled veteran, a noisemaker, a rule breaker, he's my people, and an industry disruptor. Miguel, welcome. I thought we could start from the beginning. Like you talked to me about how your mom was an inspiration to you creatively. I would love to talk about that. I'll give you some background. My mom grew up in Puerto Rico and she was one of the founding members of a children's choir called the Coro de Niños de San Juan. She did a lot of really cool things at an early age, like singing a solo at the Carnegie Hall and performed around the world and with the Vienna Boys Choir for the first time. So pretty interesting and inspiring to me. She was our music teacher growing up. She was definitely the first inspiration in my musical journey. Did she teach you how to read music? Yeah, I learned at an early age to read music and took a lot of piano lessons, learned trumpet, a guitar. I've always done everything by ear, but when I was playing guitar, I learned everything by ear. At what age did you start writing music? I remember writing at seven or eight, but writing seriously at 10 and trying to figure out my own things. Like I'd go to Guitar Center and all these guys playing the same Stairway to Heaven, you know, and I try to stray away from that. And you said that she's still like working in music today, right? Yeah, she's uh, actually my business manager. (laughs) I grew up like going to the Kennedy Center and watching her shows that she would produce. So, Uh, and also I learned a lot about niches and it's like people don't know that Miley Cyrus has a brother, you know, (laughs) like exactly. So it's like... (laughs) You know, you can be huge and not be known or whatever. So she's done some cool things in her space, I'd say, in the classical music world. Talk to me a little bit about like your childhood and are your parents together? Mm -hmm. Your dad's an attorney. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the oldest of seven and we grew up in Arlington. Well, I was born in Arlington. I grew up in Alexandria and in Fairfax, Virginia. Grew up in the metro DC area, went to private school. I started getting into like skateboarding, art graffiti, things like that, punk music. My upbringing in my family, I'd say a pretty busy household. It's always noise, you know, pretty structured, you know, that we're doing chores and had schedules. About 10 or 11, I started turning into the rebellious, you know, discovering my art and my voice and playing music and smuggling CDs and cassettes and mixtapes that I would make, eventually growing into having a band when I was 11 or 12. My first band was called Typo, T-Y-P-O. So I grew up playing punk music and just, I'm a recovering Catholic, so living the Catholic life back then. Yeah, that's the beginning. Oh my gosh, I love that. How did the name Typo come about? I was heavily inspired by Blink-182 then. I had a few other names for it, but the name came right after their Take Off Your Pants and Jacket album. 
So it stood for take your pants off at first. And then, so like I had like a pants as logo and it was just kind of like a freeing fuck the system at a young age without knowing what the fuck I was talking about. And then from the punk days, it kind of turned into getting a little more into the hardcore scenes. I moved to Douglasville, Georgia. So I met all these different bands like Norma Jean and my favorite was The Chariot back then. And those were pretty influential bands to me in historical shows. They really set the bar and standard of performance and influence in music and just making new things or just being wild and sending a message. I learned a lot then. I remember those days and really miss those days. And I was totally into the punk scene too. Were you like screaming out the lyrics to your favorite songs? And like <laughs> I was, but I like to perform. I like to make people think. I'll give you an example. Like one of my favorite pieces photograph called piss christ it was a photograph of a crucifix in a cup of urine upside down just bringing that up always incites some sort of fire in people whether they're for it or against it it's passionate things like that you also said you like to poke fun at the abortion bear can you explain that <laughs> yeah there's all these like hot topics, you know, it's just always something part of creating artwork is documenting history or what people say and what people think. And, you know, there's always two sides to every story. One issue obviously is, you know, pro-choice, pro-life. That's one. I like to create artwork, just kind of navigating that and questioning those beliefs on which one's right. When I was a couple of days old, my mom attended a pro-life rally. She spoke at it. So there's like a picture of me, infant, like a couple of days old on stage. And I grew up like going to like the pro-life marches in Washington, D.C. for most of my life. And when you get older, you start questioning those things, like all these moral values that you've been instilled or, you know, because there's always another side to it. So have you had that talk with your mom? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We talk all the time about it. And like those are just conversations in life that just better said in art. Like Another decision that you made based upon living in the DC metro area, you said <laughs> around 10 or 11, you witnessed 9-11 and that experience led you to want to become a soldier later in life. Can you talk about mm -hmm. that? Yeah. I remember when 9-11 happened, I was 11 in sixth grade in physics class. That was the first time that I ever heard the word terrorist uttered. She says, oh, somebody hit the World Trade Centers, just ran a plane into it. It's like, terrorists? That kind of struck me as a impactful moment of my life. It made me question the world in some ways. And I felt like one way to honor my country and to give back was to join the military. And I'm a third generation military. My dad was a captain. My grandpa was uh, an officer as well. He was a doctor. I went enlisted and I'm the oldest of four boys and there's three girls and all the boys in my family have all served and went to Iraq and Korea. So I served for five years. I also felt that it was important in documenting history, being there and witnessing things and also allowing those influences to go into my artwork in different ways. So created artwork overseas. I was always the unit artist. I always just knew that that was supposed to be part of my journey. I even saw online you're called like an artivist. Basically, it's activism, but you're using art. So you said that you had your laptop there and you were creating music there. <laughs> 
Yeah. So I brought a laptop. I couldn't bring a guitar. I had Fruity Loops for a few years. I was just making electronic music at that time. I was really moved with house music and techno. At the end of the day, it's like I figured I'd go down at some point and you know if I was gonna die I want to die making music yeah that can was you talk to me about that entrance to hell that you found oh yeah without giving too much there was a, a region in Iraq called Sinjar and Sinjar has this mountain that has a lot of legends associated with it one of them is that Noah's Ark floated to the mountain and was kind of hovering there but the mountain was too small to hold it so Noah cursed the land and continued floating on when the world was flooded and continued to Mount Ararat, where that the Ark rests to this day. Ironically, that mountain also is associated with like the portal or the gates to hell to the middle of the earth. And I think that there's another spot similar to it in Japan and somewhere in Europe. And nobody's like gone into those mountains and lived, you know, it kind of just talks about all these old myths, but they don't speak of it in a biblical sense. It's more of a, this is a factual, this is what happened. And we've been passing this down by word of mouth for generations. So it's a lot more interesting to hear. Changed my mentality on different things, especially like my belief in purity among thieves. Like nobody thinks that they're the thief or the bad guy. You know, kind of like coming to terms and learning, like, are we the bad guys just going into somebody's land or what's the purpose of war? This is something that I've definitely talked to other veterans about in different ways and different conversations. It's things that I like to write about as well. Something else that you got into was Bitcoin and NFT. Can you talk <laughs> yeah. a little bit about that? We're at this time in history. There's a new frontier. I like to compare it to MP3s coming from like the cassette and analog world. When that happened, it was said like, oh, MP3s, they'll never last. Or they don't understand why you would have a digital asset of a song when you can just have a CD. This is a little different in that it's, it's giving control back to an artist. It's also authenticating artwork that can be passed down for generations in a different way through the blockchain. It hasn't been done before. I don't find it as a like a golden ticket. I just find it as a new way of delivering artwork. Currently, I'm working with my mentor, Gilbert Young, on some projects he worked on. He's created some historical pieces of art, a painting called He Ain't Heavy. And he is also the only artist in history to have created a presidential portrait that was signed by the president. And that's per Christie's and Zosby's. Nobody's ever done that before. And also working as an agent to the collection for an artist named Bill Trailer from the 1850s. He was in the slave days and was released from slavery, I believe, say when he was like 70, almost 80. And then he lived to be, I believe, 90s. He became an artist right after he got freed and he was homeless and created a lot of amazing pieces of art that are very important to culture and history. So hopefully we'll be able to put those on the blockchain at some point and figure out how to preserve these works on the digital platform as well. I see it as a way to preserve history and a new outlet for artists to take charge of their career and receive funds directly or allow their fans to contribute directly into their work and help leave a longer legacy outside of computers and the physical space. He died in the streets, homeless, without family. You know, same with Tesla and all these other artists. So 
this is a legacy we have to preserve. And you know, if he was alive today, I'm sure it'd be a different world for him, especially with his art. It just, just speaks for those times. I just, for the first time, saw a gas station here in Chicago that said Bitcoin available. Back then they had Bitcoin ATMs. That was a strange time because when I started with Bitcoin, you had to get your wallet from the dark web. And then they started these centralized platforms that kind of made me question the validity of what Bitcoin was becoming, if it's going against what it was made for in the first place. When you're putting Bitcoin on these centralized platforms like Cash App or Robinhood or whatever, I really questioned that. And then I, I was really questioning those ATMs. I've never used them. Just felt weird to me to take a credit card and put it to Bitcoin when that's not what it was for. Right. So talk to me about some of the possibilities and some of the goodness like that you've created. Like you said that you have like a virtual world and like some of your ideas around mm. that. I'm working on figuring out what this space looks like. We don't really know what this space looks like at this point, but we have a pretty good idea of things. It's called a metaverse. And imagine... It could be as simple as that game with the cubes. I don't remember Minecraft. Minecraft. Imagine like a Minecraft world, but it's like a digital space where like everybody can have their avatars pop up and we can go shake hands and high five with our avatars. Then you can also display artwork in virtual galleries. I like the possibility and the ideas of creating NFTs that you can basically Pokemon Go the artwork and kind of like hold your phone up and you can see it if you own it, but nobody else could see it at that one geolocation. The possibilities are endless. It's just being made. There's a lot of new frontiers that we have to cross. I mean, we're just talking about this right now. Like, we'll see how far Neuralink takes this. I'm very pro hook my brain up to a machine because I've seen Neuralink-like technologies help people greatly. Like a child I was taking care of with cerebral palsy a few years back, he had some sort of implant that allowed him to look at words on a screen and the machine would speak so very like Stephen Hawking's kind of machine. I'm glad that you brought up the child that you took care of. How did you connect with him? I was doing cannabis advocacy and his mother was a friend of mine and I moved in with them sometime in 2015. The very first day that I moved in there, he had to go to the hospital and she had to go to work. So I was like, yeah, I'll go to the hospital with you. I'll cover no problem. Not knowing that like I wasn't going to leave that hospital for months, you know, and uh, it was uh, just an interesting part of my life. I started a company in the cannabis space to help veterans get off of pharmaceuticals because I had a stroke when I was in Korea. I got off of benzodiazepines and I quit drinking all at once. So I was in the gym lifting and had a stroke. I uh, got out of the military shortly after that. So I started this cannabis company to help vets get off of pharmaceuticals and bring awareness to PTSD and veteran suicide and mental health issues. And that was just kind of the beginning of that journey. Yeah, after he passed away, I kind of just exited out of the cannabis space. How long were you helping take care of him? Could have been like a year, like a few months of like direct. And then there was like a point where... I was writing a story about this. It's called caregiver syndrome. And it wasn't like it was just me. It was like nurses were dropping left and right. And it's just like a lot of, it's a lot to take care of somebody 24-7, especially when like they're trying to kill themselves. I learned a lot from the parental perspective. I've really learned a lot from parents in the special needs community, a different kind of resilience and courage that it takes to go through the world and different perspectives of what is life about and purpose and 
what it's like to just continue fighting. So I think that the military really helped me prepare for that phase of my life. Yeah, that must have been so hard. There's millions of people that have disabilities and are suffering in some way. So it really made me appreciate them a lot more. Their voice and their stories, their abilities to touch different people's lives. So Jack couldn't even speak, but he's affected millions of people's lives in different ways. Uh, There's a cannabis law that passed in honor of his name called Jack's Law and allows children to bring cannabis to school. And that was championed by his mother, who uh, still to this day is a very prominent cannabis activist, still fighting the good fight, even five years after Jack passed. So That's amazing. Your opinions, though, of cannabis have changed, right? Yeah, I have an interesting perspective with cannabis. I think part of it is like some views just, I've just observed how it's used. Is it really even like a medicine or medical? You know, a lot of people would argue, yeah, because stop my seizures or keeps me from having pain and anxiety. And I've also seen, you know, people go crazy with it. So it's an interesting substance. And I think that from a scientific perspective, I don't know, like we have a cannabinoid system, but you know, how much like, are we supposed to be just taking these cannabis at whatever doses or, you know, I've just seen it uh, abused and I've seen it used. I've seen miracles happen with it as well. So tell me about that. I mean, I've seen like people literally shaking, having episodes and falling over, literally like falling over, having a seizure and then little cannabis oil like brings them right back. And it's just, wow, like Parkinson's, like I've seen it firsthand. After you see those things, it it makes you question the use of it. So it's like, are we supposed to even smoke it? There's so many ways to consume cannabis and there's so many different bodies. But at the end of the day, everybody's super unique. And if you have something that helps you, God bless you, use it. Also, I'm curious, like, what did you learn from having a stroke? A few things. I learned what a shitty person I was (laughs) personally. And uh, it changed my life in a different way. It taught me how to let go of life because at that moment I did. I had like an out-of-body experience. I'm very skeptical of how powerful the human brain is. I like to question reality in some ways because when you have a stroke or you have a near-death experience, there's a lot of similarities and a lot of things that shoot off in your brain at that moment. It really just changed my personality a lot. I used to be very selfish, I think and blame other people for mistakes or or whatever. The fragility of life, that's number one. Our mortality, the importance of doing good and spreading good around the world and helping other people pass their pains. It allowed me to kind of like skip steps because if I was to wait till the end of my life to have that experience, I don't think that I'd be the same. Wow. Like, I, oh my gosh, where did it happen? And like, yeah, I was in Korea. I was stationed at Camp Casey and it happened in the gym. I remember like when I was having it, my initial thought, cause I, my legs stopped functioning. And I thought that cause previously I was doing squats. My process was like, your legs aren't working because you lifted too much. And then I went through like this moment of embarrassment. I was trying to talk to people, but I was slurring and everybody thought I was wasted. I had like this band coming through my head. Like I was like a weird bruise. It took one of my sergeants to kind of put two and two together. I just sat there for a while and like, just trying to like get it together. You know, it was a weird physical experience, but mentally it was also And I'm still, you know, still process that feeling or those things and use it as a guide to look back on. 
as that experience. So it's really anchored uh, that belief in me to continue to pursue this path of art. Do you think it's also played into you like wanting to stick up for others and like things that you really believe in? A few things come into play with that. One is that I noticed that for some reason I had the view to see the reach in social media and how you can impact others. Like people joined the military because of me and my videos at one point in my life, which was very strange. And all I was doing was just posting videos of me in the military, not trying to recruit people, not trying to do anything. It was just, I was just being myself. So I realized that there's also the aspect of experience in which I think that there are things in my life, whether I was responsible for them or not, or just like associated and around with them. like just the fact that I was like, in Iraq with the military around these people that did this makes me feel like I have a duty to make amends for those things and to help change to whatever I think is a good for humanity. But it's like, at the end of the day, it's, it's not me. So that's why I like to just put artwork out there to make people think and to change in their own perspective. I don't want to impose my beliefs or my experiences on people. So there's that balance that you have to play. And then also finding a purpose. It also helps me find purpose in why I'm doing this. It's like, I'm not just doodling on my pad today. I'm trying to create something that says something. I love it. Is there anything that you want to ask my daddy? How do you make people care? Yeah, I think it's something that we can all study. Yeah. And if there's any links that you want to send me to put in the show notes of awareness that I can spread, please do that. Yeah, I will definitely. For the Tigray situation, go to omnatigray.org, O-M-N-A-T-I-G-R-A-Y.com. And I'll try to post something on my website, yetitears.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. It was awesome to connect. You too. So, Daddy, what did you think? Very interesting adventure with Miguel Tully. The part that sticks out immediately to me is that he recognizes the connection that someone who is selfish and only thinking of themselves, that look how he threw in there, that people come up with plenty of excuses. Should have been this way or it should have been that way. Woulda, coulda, shoulda. That there's always an excuse for not getting what you want. I think that that is a profound connection, that selfish people are also full of excuses. Yeah, that's pretty deep. That is pretty deep. And look at his journey. He ends up also following certain legacies of his family. Everyone in his family has served their country. And getting that discipline, getting that camaraderie of being not only loyal to your country, but loyal to the people that have the same goal in mind of fighting for your country and being loyal to your country and being loyal to your either your teammates if you're on a team or dedication where honor and loyalty, these are very strong traits that all people should have. Uh, I'll tell you a little story that even as a little boy, somebody was going to call me the camper of the year. And when I was at the train station with this fellow guy, when we were going to Camp Loyaltown, I told him how somebody gets camper of the year. And he says, I'm going to be camper of the year. It'll mean a lot to me. And I'll be able to show my parents that going off to this camp, that I participated in everything and that I'm going to be the camper of the year. And the funny part is, is that the person who was going to be the camper of the year this year 
was going to be me. The counselor came up to me and said that I'd like to make you the camper of the year. And then I told him how Guy had his heart set on it. And I know that that was your second choice. He had told me, why don't you give it to him? It doesn't mean that much to me. So even as a young boy, somebody wanted something more or more recognition and had to be the president. I was happy to be the vice president and be a regular dude. I didn't need extra acclamations or titles to make me feel extra important. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com.